Let's take our Bibles and turn to Hebrews chapter 12. While you're looking that up, if uh, your car is a Toyota Silver Highlander DHK 9266, could you go and speak to one of the deacons at the front door in the narthex? Hebrews chapter 12. Let's read from verse 3. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by Him. For the Lord disciplines the one He loves and chastises every son whom He receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom the Father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline, in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us, and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time, as it seemed best to them. But He disciplines us for our good, that we may share His holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant." but later it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. I don't hesitate to say this morning that this is one of the most crucial parts of the Bible. It is crucial to your understanding of the dynamics of the Christian life, and that it is a priority for us to understand what's being said here, both for your well-being and for your right thinking as a Christian. The words were originally written, of course, to these people who have endured a hard struggle with sufferings, we're told in chapter 10. If we're following Jesus Christ and pain and hurt and losses affect you, you may well, very well be asking yourself the question, have I done the wrong thing? Have I taken the wrong advice? Am I going in the wrong direction. If you are struggling on the journey as a Christian, maybe you've become weary of the trials and the hardships that appear constantly to be coming into your life, just as these people were uh, as we're reading this passage today. Have you made the wrong choice in following Jesus? Those are real questions. And they're questions that we have to face in the light of what God has revealed in the Bible. One of the things we find in this little passage is, are those words, have you forgotten? Or you have forgotten how the Scripture addresses you, how God addresses you. And that's why you're getting weary. He's talked earlier on in verse 3 about becoming weary and faint-hearted. He's talking about those who have been enduring and have lost 
their confidence. Well, we lose our confidence when we forget how God has addressed us. The writer has already reminded these people of the the goal and the future that God has laid out for His people. He says to them back in chapter 10, verse 34, you yourselves have a better possession and an abiding one. He reminds them that what is our goal? Our goal is heaven, and our goal is God, and our goal is the vision of God, the sight of God, and the transformation that that vision, that sight, that goal will be upon us in our own lives. But we also need to remember not only what lies before us, but we we also need to be reminded, as this passage has already done in the previous verses, of the one we are following in this Christian race. He uses the picture of the marathon. The ancient marathon was run in the countryside and desert, up mountains and down into valleys, with all kinds of obstacles on the route. Robbers could attack you on the, on the journey. But the author here has reminded us of who it is we're following in this Christian life, this race. We're following Jesus. This book has already reminded us of what it was like for Jesus in the life of faith, in, in the way of obedience to His Father, in His human nature. That is, in the nature we identify with when we think of Jesus. We don't identify with His deity, but we identify with His humanity. And in His humanity, He learned obedience by the things that He suffered. In His humanity, He was perfected, so the Bible says. He was perfected, that is, He was brought to maturity. That is, what God's plan for Him was came to its completion as He obeyed. He was perfected through suffering. And we are following Him not only as our pioneer, as it says at the beginning of this chapter, we are following Him as our elder brother, because the the title that belongs properly to Jesus, that is, as the eternal Son of God, the divine Son of God, that name, Son, applies to every man or woman who is a believer within the sound of my voice. By adoption, we are named sons of God, children of God, in the family of God. Now, it's in that context, then, that our author uses a word, a Greek word that recurs again and again and again in this paragraph that we've read together today. The Greek word is the word paideia. It's translated discipline, sometimes education, sometimes training, sometimes chastening. It it describes an educative process in which the education is not simply learning words or learning ideas, but actually physically in the totality of our lives engaging in the process of being educated by God. And the purpose for the education is this. 
that God in His grace who has given us our salvation freely without any cost to us has in saving us enrolled us in His school, which is a school of holiness. God is a great desire, you see, to take you and I and, and not only to give us eternal life, but to begin the work and process of fashioning us, transforming us, making us more and more like the Lord Jesus Christ, producing in us more and more as the days pass the fruit of the Holy Spirit, love and joy and peace patience, and all of those qualities. He is about the business, as he, we're told in the letter to the Ephesians, of making us holy and without blame before Him in love. And how does He do that? Well, there's the painless way and the painful way. The painless way is that He gives us His Word his word appeals to us, be holy because I am holy. His word says to us that we are to be renewed in our minds and therefore be transformed. His word brings all the promises of God to bear upon us and upon our conscience and our hearts, and with the promises, the admonitions, the encouragements of God in terms of how we live our lives. But sometimes we don't listen. Sometimes, like these people, we forget the exhortation. Sometimes the Word goes over our head, and God has to use means other than His Word in order to carry on the training and the education and the discipline that will enable us day by day to become more and more like Jesus. And that's really what this passage is all about. This may be the most important sermon you hear in your life this morning, because it has to do with the way you view life. It has to do with the way you deal with circumstances in your life. And I speak to you as one who's been living quite a long time. I'm almost embarrassed to think how long I've been living. <laughs> it's embarrassing to tell people my age anymore. But as a very, very young guy in my teens, I read a book by Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones in which he addressed this passage and in which he pointed me first to the themes of this passage. And it set me up for a life where all kinds of difficulties come along the way. I've been a minister for 45 years, for goodness sake. Who in their right mind would be a minister for 45 years? I don't know. With all the snash you have to deal with and the ups and downs, I mean, it's a great job. If it wasn't for people, it would be a perfect job. Uh, but the reality is, what, what has sustained me? I tell you, this passage of Scripture has sustained me, and I want you to find out why as we study it together. It's speaking to us about our education and discipline and training as 
sons, that is, as children of God. Listen to these words again, verse 6 and 7. The Lord disciplines the one He loves and chastises every son whom He receives. God is treating you as sons. Now, let's think about that then as as we go through this passage, because at the end of the passage, the big question that is put before us is this. If there is no hardship in your life, it may mean that there is no relationship with God. That is the challenge at the end of this section. Bear that in mind then as we look first of all at the definition, the definition of chastening. That's another word we could use for this discipline and this education, chastening. Whenever we look in the Bible, we find examples of this principle of discipline, education, training in the life of the believer. I've mentioned David Martin Lloyd-Jones. He, he, in one of his little books somewhere, assembles a number of scriptures that remind us of this principle at work that help us arrive at a definition. So, when the Apostle Paul writes to the Romans in Romans chapter 5, he tells the Romans to rejoice in trouble. Jesus talks about trouble. He says, in this world, you will have trouble. Why does Paul tell us to rejoice in trouble? Because trouble comes with the Christian life. When we come round the Lord's table, we regularly read from 1 Corinthians chapter 11, and in that chapter, we read that God is active not only in us, in our lives as individuals, but He's active in the life of a congregation. And as we read those words, we're reminded that because of God's action, many are weak and sick, and some have even died as a result of God's action. In 2 Corinthians chapter 1, the Apostle Paul tells of an experience in which he says, quote, that he was so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. And he tells us about that extraordinary period that he would have to learn through that experience, quote, to rely not on ourselves but on God. In 2 Corinthians chapter 12, he tells the story of the thorn in his flesh. Though he prayed that God would remove this persistent, chronic issue in his body, in his, in his experience, he does not define it so that you and I can't, can't find a way out of listening to God's Word on the matter. But as he tells us about this thorn in the flesh, he tells us that he prayed again and again and again that God would remove this thorn in his flesh. But God did not remove it. And through the process of this hardship, he learned that God's strength is made perfect in our weakness. When the Lord Jesus writes to a church, a church, Laodicea, he writes to this church in Revelation chapter 3, verse 19. He says this to the church, those I love, I reprove and discipline. 
Throughout the story of Israel and the church, as well as the story of individual believers, God has used trials and troubles to train and to teach and to transform His people. Notice, I am not saying God uses punishments. He uses chastisements, which sometimes look like punishments, but they are not. They are training exercises to teach us in the school of holiness. That's the definition. God uses correction and instruction and training with a view to making us holy. Let's look secondly at the examples of chastening. Martin Lloyd-Jones notes a number of things or makes a number of suggestions. I'll use some of his and throw in some of mine. He talks about money. Money, some financial loss comes into your life. A change in your material position comes into your life. Many of us have had this in our experience. We've known the loss of, a, of income, perhaps, massive loss of income. Or we've changed jobs and the new job hasn't, hasn't produced the same amount of income as we had before. Or or the circumstances of our life are such that we, we have known huge uh, uh, failure of reserves. We're left with very, very little just getting by and, and perhaps hardly getting by without people's, other people's help. Maybe you've been in those circumstances. And those kinds of change of monetary and, and earthly position are often used by God to teach us lessons we would not learn in any other way. Same thing, same thing happens with health. We mentioned that earlier, 1 Corinthians 11, where the whole communion matter is being discussed, and the Apostle Paul says this to them, let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup, for anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the Lord's body, that is the church, without taking the church into account, how Christ loves His church eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and sickly, and some have died. You can see from that statement right there that these health and wealth preachers are peddling lies to people when they give the impression that it is never God's will that His people be weak or ill or have nothing. They're lying through their teeth. They're setting up a false hope. They are destroying people in their Christian lives who are finding that to be a Christian is a hardship very often. Sometimes it's God's method to train us in holiness. That's why it says in those words, this is why many of you are weak. For this cause, many of you are weak, and some have even died. God disciplines churches. He disciplines churches by the kinds of things that happen in the course of a church's life. He's not only training us, He's training us as individuals and training us as a congregation. And what Scripture teaches, brothers and sisters, is this that God's will for our holiness takes precedence over our will 
for immediate happiness and healthiness. If we will not hear and apply the Word of God preached to us, then God will resort to tougher measures to get our attention. I quoted earlier the Apostle Paul's experience. On one occasion, he tells us he was caught up in the Spirit. He had visions and revelations of the Lord. He tells us he was caught up into paradise, and he heard things that cannot be told. It was an exalted, supernatural experience. If he was living today in America, he would have a publisher, he'd have published the book, and he'd be making millions off the stories that he had to tell. And he realized, as he had these revelations, that he had every reason to divulge what he'd seen, and that it was grounds for his boasting. But instead, he tells us, listen to his words, so to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh. He was given this chronic, ongoing, uncomfortable, daily issue to deal with, lest he become conceited. That's his language. He goes on to say, it was a messenger of Satan. But he says, in the purpose of God, this messenger of Satan was given by God to teach him a God lesson. And the God lesson was this. God says to him, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in your weakness. And the apostle learned the lesson. For he says, I learned that when I am weak, then I am strong. What Satan sends to upset us, God uses to train us. We learned the same lesson in the book of Hebrews. Our brothers and sisters here had even experienced, we're told in chapter 10, the plundering of their property. And yet the writer is saying to them that God has been at work in this, endure this, Endure this. This is what the Christian life is about. It's enduring whatever life throws up. It is not random, but in the hands of God, it is a means to your spiritual growth. Lloyd-Jones talks about the absence of God. He, he, He says this, there are undoubtedly times when God seems to withdraw His presence and to hide His face from us. And at such times, God is teaching us. He's teaching us to trust Him when we don't have any benefits to trusting Him. Like the book of Job. You remember the book of Job was about this very question. God is silent. Job's friends came to see Him. They weren't silent. They yabbered on all the time about their ideas, trying to comfort Him or make Him feel bad in His trials and troubles, as much of what they said did. And even then, Job, he copied his friends, and he started spouting out his ideas as to what and why things were happening the way they'd happened in his life, until God turns up and tells him to be silent. 
Brothers and sisters, in the things that we endure in our lives, God uses them to teach us lessons, to teach, to teach us how to believe when believing is hard, when believing is impossible from a human perspective. It's there we learn the supernatural nature of what it is to believe. And then there are feelings. We talk about the states of a Christian, the states in which a Christian finds themselves. Sometimes we find ourselves perplexed or troubled. We, we say to people, I have no joy anymore. I don't have a sense of God. I go to church. I have no sense of God. Some of us are very dependent on our sense of God by, by the, the way in which we gather for worship. Some of us uh, who enjoy contemporary worship music know that as we're using that music in, in that context, the, the music is our love language. The kind of language that is used by contemporary songwriters is, is natural to us. It is our love language. We, when we're worshiping in that context, we can feel caught up and our love for God can be excited in a, in a proper sense, uh, built up by the very experience of worshiping God in that manner. That's a, that's a reality. Others of us, what does it for us are the words of these great hymns. And these things leave us as we sing them with a sense of the presence of God. But some of us find at times in our lives that it isn't doing that for us anymore. We lose our joy. We lose our sense of God. What moved us before doesn't move us now. And we become afraid. Is, is there no reality to my experience? The doctor talks about the desertions of the Spirit that seem to take place, but are in fact part of God's education. We cannot put our confidence. Here's the thing. Music can make me feel good even when it's got nothing to do with God. And I can mistake the effect of music, whether it's what we do here or what other people do elsewhere. I can mistake the effect of music on me as a person for the sense of God. God sometimes teaches us by withdrawing the comfort that comes from that to have our sense of God based on the reality of God's presence and not simply being moved by something exterior to ourselves. Well, that leads me to the third point, the purpose of chastening. The whole of this section, really, is in answer to that question about the purpose. And here are the things I want us to learn this morning. Hebrews 12 teaches us concerning the hardships that we experience in our lives, that they are first and foremost the evidence that God loves you. Isn't that an amazing thing? They're the evidence that God loves you. Look at what it says there in verse, nine, in verse 6. For the Lord disciplines the one He loves. He disciplines those He loves. It is because God loves us that He appears at times 
to be cruel, to be kind. Look at verse 7. It is for discipline, chastening you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. So, if we ever find ourselves asking the question, if I am as a Christian, if I am a Christian, why am I enduring these circumstances? Why is this happening to me? And if we're sensitive souls, we, we might draw our own conclusions. I have a dear brother, and uh, uh, this dear brother, from time to time, I, I've always agreed with everything he said and always answered the question the way he wanted me to answer the question. But from time to time, I, I disagreed with his He didn't give him the answer he was looking for. Or I pushed back on something, and he would invariably say something like this to me. You hate me. You do. You hate me, don't you? I said, no, I I disagree with you. I don't hate you. I really don't hate you. I really, really like you. But I disagree with you. Oh, no, you hate me. And so sometimes, you know, in our experience with God, we think that. Whenever something goes against us, something goes the way, not the way we think the way God should do it in our lives. We think, well, he's, he hates me. He must hate me. Go back to the text. You're encountering trials and troubles. You have questions and doubts. You have setbacks and handicaps and hardships. Why are you enduring these things? The answer is you're enduring them because you're a Christian. For your training the things you are going through, the things you have been going through, the things you will going, be going through are part and parcel of what it means for us to learn how to grow in grace and in our knowledge of God. God is treating you as sons, that is, as children. The word sons, by the way, I keep saying this, applies to men and women alike because we're given the status of the firstborn sons within the family of God. We inherit, we inherit God's promises together. The great Puritan John Owen puts it like this, he offers himself unto you in the habit of a father to his children. Or again, he says, he proposeth himself unto you that is as a father and acts accordingly not as an enemy, not as a judge, not as towards a stranger, but as towards his own children. He is treating you, it says, as children. And what is his greater purpose? Look at verse 10. He refers to earthly parents. Our earthly parents discipline us for a short time as it seemed best to them. Now, I know that some, and maybe you're in this room today, and you were abused by your parents. That's a rare thing, but it has. It happens. That's not what this is speaking about. This is speaking about the normal run-of-the-mill disciplining that parents do in order to train their children to grow up to be healthy, happy adults. And sometimes good parents get it wrong. Sometimes good parents discipline you for doing something you didn't do because your little brother did it. I got that all the time. 
And uh, I forgive him now, just in case you wondered. But that's the reality. Good, good parents, with all the goodwill in the world, are going to make mistakes. And that's what the author recognizes here. They did what, what seemed good to them, and that's good. But God, God disciplines us for our good, that we may share His holiness. You see? This is the goal. The goal of God is that we should be holy, that we should be released more and more from the grip of the world, that we should be more and more released from the pull of our old nature. You know that you have an old nature and a new nature in you if you're a believer. What Paul calls the old man and the new man, the person I was and the person I am by grace, are locked in this combat all the time within me. As Paul writes to the Galatians, the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh, and they're, they're in conflict. They're opposed to each other. That battle is going on inside of us all of the time. We wrestle with ourselves all of the time. I say to the old self, old self, stop it. And old self says to the new self, shut up. New self says to the old self, did your mother not tell you never to say shut up? <laughs> this conflict goes on within us all of the time. We have an example of this in 2 Corinthians chapter 12. There Paul again tells us how it was that he was caught up into paradise. It was such a real experience. He says, I didn't know if I was in the body or out of the body. I didn't know if this was a, a spiritual vision I was having or whether I was actually there in the body in paradise. It was so real. And I heard things that cannot be told. It was awesome, awesome experience. But he says, to keep me from becoming conceited, I was given a thorn in the flesh. In other words, you see the potential problem, the potential problem within Paul, apparently, was the problem of pride. God works to, to deal with that in our lives, you see that tends away from holiness, and that is something like pride. Most of us need to crucify ourselves. Most of us make ourselves the center of the world, which is why we get hurt feelings when people do something that we don't like. When someone's promoted above us, we're hurt feelings are a mark of the self-centeredness of our, of our nature. When somebody's promoted above us and so on, you, you see the evidence of that. And Paul is highlighting the danger of pride, and therefore God uses circumstances to bring us down a bit. Not to destroy us, but to bring us down a bit, to, to demonstrate to us that we need to be humbled under the mighty hand of God. Pride can coincide with overconfidence. God has given us gifts. Each one of us has gifts. And we very easily slip into trusting in ourselves or our abilities or our income or our church or our reputation. Yes, even churches 
can be proud. Some churches have a great reputation for sound doctrine that are today gathering a reputation for harboring sin. Sound doctrine is non-negotiable, but so is moral integrity. But not if those things make us smug and self-righteous. Not if these things have led to us putting our lives on hold so that there is really no progress from what we were 10, 20, 30, 40 years ago, or two years ago. Have we learned as a church not to trust in celebrity? Have we learned not to put our confidence in a magnificent past? Have we learned not to make an idol out of something less than God? Have we grown in grace and in the knowledge of the Lord? And are we as individuals growing in grace? And then there's worldliness. Jesus says, love not the world. The world is not a friend to the believer. Now, as I say all of this, please don't let up and don't let go. But let, utilize your challenges and ask God for grace to grasp what it is the Holy Spirit is doing. If it's pride, then humble yourself under the mighty hand of God. If you've been self-sufficient and you've lost stuff, let God cause you to be dependent on Him. Remember that God uses both His Word and our circumstances together for our holiness, that the Word interprets what He's doing in our lives and explains and reminds us of what the goal is, so that in the end we're able to say with the psalmist in Psalm 119, it is good for me that I was afflicted. What is really going on in our lives is that God is working out His plan to make us more like Jesus. He is working out His plan to produce in us more and more of the fruit of the Spirit. He is weaning us away from the things of earth and giving us a taste for heaven. He is teaching us humility and faith and meekness and patience. He's bringing us back again and again to the Scriptures that we might not forget what God has said to us as His children. You remember the story of the disciples in the boat when the storm hit and Jesus is sleeping. When Jesus wakes up later on, He, he says to them, why were you unbelieving and afraid? Why were you unbelieving and afraid? Just because a little pokey storm hit your boat and the boat was nearly sinking? Is that, is that what panicked you? Is that how you responded to the hardship of the storm? Why does he rebuke them before he does anything? I mean, he's going to say to the storm, the wind and the waves, be still, and they'll be still immediately by his word. But he rebukes them. What had they forgotten? In their fear, what had they forgotten? That the one who made the wind and waves 
and the sea and the boat and them was in the boat with them. That's why the author has said here, as we live this Christian life, as we run this Christian marathon, we are to be looking to Jesus. We are to consider Jesus. He said it twice. Look to Jesus. Consider Jesus. You're following Him. If these things are happening to you, know this. They happen to Him first. It is the way the Master went. Should not the servant tread it still? We're simply following Jesus. When the hardship comes, and we remember He's in the boat with us. Let's pray. Father, we pray that uh, as You give us tools to understand what's going on in our lives and the hardships and issues that we face, whether it's difficult people or difficult circumstances, that we do it within the will of God, and we do it in order that we might grow in grace, that by the time we end the journey, we're a bit more like Jesus than we were at the beginning. We pray this in His strong name. Amen.